Hello and welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and I'm the founder of PCOS Diva. And my mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. This podcast is sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS, a 21-day plan that takes you step-by-step through healing and thriving with PCOS. It's all in there waiting for you, beginning with the three keys to living your best life as a PCOS diva. For more details, visit HealingPCOS.com. So I often talk about the blessings of PCOS, and one of the blessings that I've experienced is that I've been able to meet some amazing women on my journey with PCOS, and my podcast guest today is one of them, and I'm just so happy to have Dr. Fiona McCullough back on the podcast, and she is a board-certified naturopathic doctor, and she's the founder and owner of White Lotus Integrative Medicine. She's worked with thousands of people seeking better health over the past 18 years of her practice. She is the author of one of my favorite books on PCOS, The Eight Steps to Reverse Your PCOS, and she has been a very popular contributor to PCOS Diva with guest posts and podcasts over the years. In fact, when I was preparing for this podcast, I realized that she was just the second interview that I did um, when I kind of launched my interview series back in 2013. So I'm just so thrilled to have her back on and to um, be chatting with her this morning. Welcome. Thank you, Amy. I have really enjoyed just interacting with you over so many years. And even before that that podcast, I had no idea that was one of your first ones because I'd been following you for so long. And I just love your book. And it's just been cool to, to kind of go through this journey, you know, together and really see so many things change for women out there. Yeah, and you know what you know what's neat too is like getting to know you and in your family, and you're you're seeing your three boys grow up, and um, you know seeing seeing them blossom and flourish, and that that's really cool, a cool part of this too. Oh, I know, and same for yours. I mean, I just saw all the amazing you know footage of your of your son graduating, and it's just amazing to see like you know how how quickly they grow up and oh. how. How well he's he's doing it's phenomenal yeah and you know we're both women with PCOS and we're you know really here to tell you that you can thrive and you know you can have children you know if doctors have told you I know they did in, in the past for me that they'd have to jump through hoops one day and and here my my baby's gonna be turning 18 and going off to college so um, there is so much hope there is absolutely yeah I, I really feel like most women with PCOS do have children. It's it's really awful that they're often told that that's not a possibility because, you know, we see again and again, it's very possible. So so you are, um, and, and I know, because you're one of my go-to experts when some new research comes out and, and I need to sort of um, make heads or tails of, of it. And, you know, I reach out to you because you really are an avid researcher and 
Um, you've published articles in major naturopathic journals, and your your book is so research-driven. And so I thought it would just be a, a great opportunity today to kind of catch up on some of the latest research, and you can kind of give us your your assessment, and um, you know we can. And I'd like to ask you some questions too. But I thought I would just sort of hand hand the mic over to you, and and you can kind of get us up to up to date with some of the latest PCOS research out there. Sure, and you know I'm like such a nerd. I love reading research. It's one of the things I do every day is go through my feeds of all the the new studies that have come out. So. There's so many new things to share and and there's always, you know, new things like every week actually. So it's very, very interesting. I think one of the ones that's the big one that a lot of people have been asking about is the study on anti-malarian hormone in pregnancy. Um, So there was the study that came out which basically found that, um, you know, they looked at at rats actually and they gave the rats a hormone called anti-malarian hormone, which we know is often quite high in women with PCOS. And what they found was that the the offspring rats actually developed PCOS um, because of the effects of this hormone on the brain. And they also found that uh, women who have PCOS have higher than average levels of anti-malarian hormone in pregnancy. And uh, so this is something that makes a lot of sense. Um, But then they went on to conclude that this is the cause, the single cause of PCOS, which caused a very big kind of uproar in our community. As and uh, the suggestion as well at the end of the study was that you know uh, giving a medication like Cetratelix, which is a basically a fertility drug, would uh, reverse PCOS entirely. Um, which uh, obviously was sounds very exciting, but um, also there were quite a few concerns with um, this being, you know, a little bit oversimplifying of, of this complicated condition. Yeah, I know a lot of the headlines were saying that a cure has been founded for PCOS and really celebrating that. And um, you know, it really does women a disservice because now they're they're ready for that magic pill. So give me the pill that's going to make my PCOS go away. <laughs> exactly right. And then the other thing that that was found about you know in the study was that this correlation only held true for the lean uh, the lean women and. Um, also that, you know, the AMH didn't induce any of the insulin resistance that we see in PCOS. So this is part of, it's, it's showing us basically the ovulatory problem, but not the rest of the condition. So it's oversimplifying PCOS as a fertility condition again, which I'm always so against because it's really so much more than that. And we know that once women go through menopause, when ovulation is not an issue, they still have issues. You know, we know there's the, the cardiovascular risks, the diabetes, the inflammation. So this didn't answer any of those uh, elements of, of the condition. And if, if, you know, if a cure for PCOS was defined as just regular ovulation, um, you know, that, that, that really does not cure this condition. We know that there's lots and lots of women who have so much difficulty with weight loss, they end up getting diabetes, they have inflammation and cardiovascular disease. That is so important. I mean, ovulation is one part of it. We can induce ovulation very easily with medication or with other, you know, natural methods as well. But still, that other element is very, very important for our health. In fact, I I would say much more important. Yeah, and I I know one of my other podcast guests from 
um, way back when was Dr. Andrea Deneif, and she has sort of led an effort to change the name of PCOS to uh, one of the suggested names, and I think it's a good name, um, metabolic reproductive disorder, because it does add that metabolic piece um, to PCOS, although I, I don't know if we necessarily need to change the, the name of PCOS, but I do think what, what you're saying is to emphasize that there is a metabolic um, component of PCOS. Absolutely. Yeah. And we even see that in, in, you know, children who go on to develop PCOS later, they have lower levels of hormones like adiponectin, which are really associated just with the metabolic elements. So Mm -hmm. it's really not just as simple as an ovulation condition. Um, So yeah, so it's a very interesting study in that it shows us that the prenatal environment does really influence, you know, our outcomes. And We know that, like, you know, if you give animals uh, testosterone, for example, the offspring will develop PCOS, or if you expose them to endocrine disruptors of various types like bisphenol A that's in plastic bottles, for example, or other types of plastics, that uh, can also induce PCOS in the offspring. So it's really like endocrine disruption in general. Mm -hmm. Prenatal state disrupts the development of the ovary and its connection to the brain. But it certainly doesn't tell us that there's one specific endocrine disruptor that does that. It's, it's quite a, a variety of different um, endocrine disruptors that can induce this effect. Right. And, and, we, and not every woman with PCOS is going to produce an offspring with PCOS either. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's families where some children have end up having PCOS and then others don't, you know, so there's definitely, you know, complex genetics involved there where there's certain genes that might be passed and certain ones that are not. And then there's the environmental uh, turning on and off of the genes, which we call epigenetics. So there's just so many, it's a, a really complicated condition. And I think the more that we learn about it and discover, the more we realize it's really, it's very multifactorial. So there is no one cause or one cure uh, I think that that's, that we're actually seeing that that's actually not the case. Right. And that, that's, that's a huge takeaway um, that it is so, such a complex um, condition. And, you know, I, I've got to give a shout out to um, advocates for PCOS that are really raising awareness um, to gain more research dollars to put behind um, PCOS because I, I was – I shared that I was um, in Washington, D.C. for PCOS Advocacy Day, and that was a a really a main thrust of why we were there, to try to to, um, get more funding for PCOS research dollars, because right now, the National Institutes of Health, their research budget, um, there's only 0.01% advocated towards PCOS research. And that's that's a problem when now um, the the statistics are as high as one in five women have PCOS. So we it's really important if you're listening and you want to to make a difference and to get more research done so that we can kind of figure out what what's going on with PCOS and this complex disorder. That you know join organizations like PCOS Challenge and contact your representatives um, in Congress and the Senate and ask them to, you know, fund more, you know, allocate more funding for PCOS research. 
So that was just my little plug. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. Like I didn't know that that little. I knew it was it was a very small amount, but I didn't know it was quite that small. You know, so it's fantastic that this advocacy. It's very needed. It's a huge problem. I mean, we think about cardiovascular disease as the number one cause of death in women. Um, and a lot of us are, you know, we feel like, oh, we're too young for that, you know. But these, the, the cardiovascular disease, all of these, these problems accumulate over time. So it's happening in our bodies now. So the more that we can learn about how to reverse and prevent these problems from happening, you know, it's going to be beneficial for us, but also for our children. So it's so, so important. It's just so many women are affected by this. And from what I can see, it seems like it's on the rise. Yeah, I think so too. And um, in, in speaking of the the car, um, cardiovascular risks, uh, when I'm doing kind of like just little um, updates, you know, looking on PubMed or Google Scholar about PCOS research, it seems like a, a lot of research is directed at the cardiovascular risks. And um, I know that there was a, a new study that just came out a little while ago saying how, um, and, and we already kind of know this, but it's just reaffirming that women with PCOS are at risk for cardiovascular events. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we see all of the risk markers are elevated ahead of time. So HSCRP mm-hmm. is a blood test that it's a it's an inflammation marker, but lots of women have high levels of this and that chronic inflammation really does increase that risk. So it's great that that there is research being directed at that now. So I'm I'm really hopeful for the future and that we're going to be able to figure out a lot more about what's been going on with uh, with this condition. Yeah, so inflammation does play such a significant role. Um, you know, is there there more in, um, studies that you've seen that sort of ties inflammation um, to risk factors of PCOS? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I thought that I've been finding really interesting, just that I've been researching lately, is about mood and inflammation. And we know that... Um, Women with PCOS, it's very consistent that we see in all the studies that we're at higher risks for depression and anxiety and uh, other mood disorders of various types. And this actually seems to hold true outside of, you know, some of the stressful kinds of elements of PCOS. So there's obviously like if you have infertility, that's very stressful. If you have hirsutism, like hair growth where you don't want it, that's stressful. Hair loss is stressful. Acne is stressful. But even outside of those, Um, we see an increase in depression and anxiety. And so it's been, you know, what's causing that? Like, is it the hormone imbalances or what, right? But um, so a study actually came out just today that I was reading um, about insulin resistance and the risk of depression. And it's, it's basically showing that the more insulin resistant women are, the more the depression seems to go up. And it it seems to go up by 2.3 fold, which is a huge increase. Um, And we know that insulin resistance is related very much with chronic low-grade inflammation. Some of the interesting research I've been reading, there's um, uh, a researcher's name is Dr. Charles Raison, and he's done a lot of research on depression and the immune system and the brain and how that works. So his, uh, what he's found is that there's a reason that we have depression in the face of inflammation. So if you think about how, um, you know, most of the risks for survival in our past before we had 
you know, our, our Western society as it is here would be from dying either from a, an infection or from an injury. And so say, for example, you had a really bad viral infection, you know, that, that's a pretty serious risk uh, for life before we had hospitals and, and medicine to, to help us survive these things. So the body's mechanism for protecting yourself during those really, you know, in, inflammatory conditions, because those are inflammatory, um, is uh, basically to go into your, your cave or your house and stay there until you get better rather than going out. You don't want to be go out, going out finding food or mating or anything else because someone, you'll probably be eaten because you're, you're weakened. So basically the body's mechanism for self-protection is to go inside and, you know, heal and get better. So that's our, that's inflammation. It, it does cause that in our brain, which looks a lot like depression. So if you're sick with a flu, you know, you're going to be lying in bed all day. You're not going to be going out. That's normal. We don't call that depression. But if you're like, you know, if that, if you acted like that every day, that would be then considered to be depression. So what they find as well is when they inject animals with inflammatory cytokines, which are the same kind that we have uh, with PCOS, the chronic low-grade inflammation, the, the rats actually start to become depressed. And they'll go into their little burrow, and they'll just sit there and be very quiet. Um, and when they take away those inflammatory cytokines, the rats actually stop being depressed again. So um, it's quite interesting in that this chronic low-grade inflammation is really related to our mood, um, and that you know trickles down into so many things. So outside of even cardiovascular risk, depression, anxiety, this is all really associated to the inflammation that we all have. Yeah, well, I know from um, a personal perspective, you know, when I am um, fall back on sort of the sad diet, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> that standard American diet, um, you know, I, I find, acronym. <laughs> yeah, I know, because it really does make me sad, and I, I find myself just wanting to curl up on the sofa, like with the shades closed, and watch, um, I don't know, my, the the period films that I like. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, Downton Abbey, I don't know, just escape from it all, um, and not engage, and, and it's funny, because now, my husband and I have been married now for, we're going on 22 years, so he knows me, um, and he'll, He'll usually say, you know, I, I like kind of force me to get to the gym to kind of get those endorphins going or say, you know, what, what did you eat today or what have you been eating? Because I honestly can track it back to foods that are inflammatory to me, like gluten um, and sugar. Uh, and it, it really affects my mood. And I think it's so satisfying to hear this research, to realize that, that, um, you know, I, I kind of figured out what was going on in myself just by listening to my body. I didn't need the research, but it's great to hear it, to kind of back it up. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it makes a lot of sense, um, you know, given that our bodies are made to really survive. And this is the Mm -hmm. only time that we haven't had these kinds of threats against our life, uh, you know, in, in society pretty much ever. And it's, it's so true. Like I know if I feel, you know, if I tend to eat outside of what I know I should be eating, I also tend to feel more down and maybe like watching too many episodes of, I don't know if you watched The Crown on Netflix. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Watch those over and over. But it's so, it's so, so true. It's like you want to just kind of 
curl up and, and be away from everything. And the other interesting thing that this uh, researcher was uh, uh, looking at, um, he was actually looking at something called hyperthermia, which I, I just thought I'd bring up because it's something that's so easy to do. And it kind of answers some of these questions about why exercise really improves our mood so much. Um, so what he found was that when you raise the body temperature, it almost induces like your, your brain thinks it's like a fever and that you've fought whatever this inflammatory infection is, and it induces anti-inflammatory responses in the body. And so this is why, this is actually part of the, re or the biggest reason they feel that exercise seems to be an antidepressant, because you're raising your core body temperature for a certain period of time. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Wow, yeah. I, would, I would not have thought of that. That's so interesting. Yeah, and they were able to induce the same exact benefit by putting, you know, for example, uh, you know, in, in what they would call a hot box, like a sauna, but raising the core body temperature would also induce these same anti-inflammatory mechanisms in the body, and people would feel, they, they do feel significant relief from depression as a result of that, so. Yeah, have you ever done um, Bikram yoga? I yoga? have. And, and yeah. you really do feel fabulous when you get out of there don't you? I mean, it's, yes. it's a lot, it's a big commitment. I was talking to my girlfriend about it because it's a 90 minute class and, and it's downtown here. So it takes me about 15, 20 minutes to get there and get home. And then you definitely need a shower after. So it's like a big, it's a big commitment to go, but it's, it, yeah, you really feel wonderful. Yeah. For anyone with mood, mood disorders, I would highly recommend it because it really, it more than even, you know, any other kind of exercise, it's the heat I think that has especially after reading this research, or even a sauna can be really mm -hmm. helpful for the same reason, you know, and I think there's a lot of history of using saunas in Europe for so many disorders, but now we're kind of finding out why it has a lot of anti-inflammatory effects on our body, and probably, you know, coming from that where, where when our body temperature is raised, that's what we do to fight an infection, but we're not, we're not getting out of that state, we're just inflamed all the time, so it kind of turns that on in our body. There, there was a study that came out a, about a month or so ago, because I posted it on Facebook, and it was about how hot tubs were, like soaking in a hot tub was really beneficial for women with PCOS. Did, do you remember seeing that? I did, and that was, it, I was so interested in that because I have a hot tub, and, um, you know, I got that, you know, mostly because I like it, but at the <laughs> same time, now I'm like, great, it's got, you know, actual benefits, but I really think it's the same mechanism, you know, I don't think it matters in a way how you raise that temperature, right. just that it, it happens somehow, and all of these methods are really beneficial. Yeah, so... Uh, I was wondering if you could give listeners some tips, like if they feel like they may be in this inflammatory state, um, you know, depressed moods, and sometimes you can just feel the inflammation, you know, you're puffy, bloated, achy joints. Um, what, what would you recommend to help kind of things that we can do to quell the in inflammation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the first thing is is diet, really, um, you know, getting rid of some of the anti-inflammatory foods, so sugar, and we were talking about the sugar dairy, and, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but at least, you know, try to cut it back to some degree, um, gluten, 
so and also anything that makes you feel not great. So if you eat something and you kind of feel like, oh, I ate that and I feel really, you know, bummed out for like three to four hours, there's probably something in there that's inflammatory that you're not responding well to because everyone is a, a bit different. Some people, you know, there are foods that other people are fine with, but they react to. So listen to your body and just like take note when you eat, you know, what, what, what is it that you ate today if you're really feeling down or inflamed? So, so working on those types of things, keeping your blood sugar really stable is really important too. So making sure you have enough healthy fats, proteins, lots of fiber with every meal and enough carbs that you're not, you know, going into a more stressful type of situation. That, that really depends on each person, how much they need. Um, and then, you know, there are anti-inflammatory supplements that are really kind of cornerstones just to take that down some notches. And we know that things like fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids are pretty, uh, you know, we have really good evidence that they're anti-inflammatory. We see benefits for mood, um, for cardiovascular disease. So those are all really through that same pathway of those being anti-inflammatory. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a really good antioxidant that is anti-inflammatory. And um, a recent study came out that showed us uh, even, I think, a couple weeks ago that that people who have abdominal fat, so basically insulin-resistant people, like, like, for example, most women with PCOS, myself included, have lower levels of selenium. And that actually is because it's being used up more by, you know, the inflammatory process because selenium is used to quench oxidative stress, which is, you know, what makes inflammation what it is. So, um, you know, those supplements can really help. And then, of course, you know, all those, you know, looking at things like exercise and just knowing the mechanism by how that works. It's actually a very physical mechanism. We're trying some things like a sauna or hot yoga uh, those, if you do all of those things together, most people would really be able to reduce their inflammation quite a bit. Yeah, and you can feel better fairly quickly. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I do want to ask you a question that I get a lot, and I know that there's some there, there's been some research um, out there recently about bariatric surgery and PCOS. Um, women want to know is you know is that going to help my PCOS? Um, you know, is it, is it worthwhile to look into? I, I'd love to get your thoughts and, and how you might counsel a patient that comes to you asking about bariatric surgery. Yeah, I do have uh, quite a few patients who've had this uh, done. And I think um, my views on it are kind of that it does have significant side effects and risks. And so it will change your life forever in ways that are both possibly beneficial and also not. Um, and so I always recommend to try everything else first uh, because of those long-term effects, because it's a surgery, um, you can't undo that. So if there's some way that you can manage your symptoms without having a surgery like this, it's always better to do that. However, there are some women for whom they have tried absolutely everything and it's not working and, you know, the, the benefit of it might be better than, you know, the risk in, in which case, I would say, find a very good surgeon and uh, see, see, like, get, get everything and just make sure you really understand the whole process. It can really change what you're able to eat, not only the amount, but what you can eat, um, how much you can eat at a time, and it might change, you know, a, a lot to do, a lot of your bowel movements might be different, actually, for the rest of your life. So I've seen uh, people have had this, and they do have to do a lot of management of it ongoing. Um, 
but you know, it really, I think it's a very individual uh, type of decision and uh, definitely not something that's going to work for the vast majority because it is such a intense intervention. Yeah. And there's other ways to reduce your androgens and regain menstrual cycles and, um, you know, and, and improve your metabolic um, outcomes. <laughs> yes, there are many, many options these days. So, um, yeah, it's it's just there's so much you can do. There's so much that we've learned, and the vast majority of of women do very, very well with the lifestyle interventions once they know exactly what to do for PCOS specifically, because. There's just so many diets out there that don't necessarily work well for PCOS. They're, they might work for other people, but you'll see a lot of women saying, well, I tried all these things that other people are trying and, you know, they're not working for me. It's really because they're not, they don't, the, the, the programs themselves are not really designed for the severe insulin resistance that we see in PCOS. Right. Well, I, I want to um, just ask you, where women can find, you know, find out more information because we're kind of running out of time. Um, and I also just want to give another shout out to your book, The Eight Steps to Reverse Your, your PCOS. Um, and, you know, what, what I love about your book, and we, I think we have a whole podcast where we talk about it, um, but I love how you've broken down uh, PCOS into dif- the different phenotypes. And I just thought, if somebody's not familiar with your book, maybe you could just give a quick overview about what that's all about. Yeah, sure. So my book is, uh, it's basically a mini encyclopedia on PCOS. So it goes through all of the different elements of PCOS that are involved. And for and these elements can actually change throughout a woman, woman's lifespan. Mm-hmm. So at certain points in time, she might be dealing with way more androgens, especially when she's younger. And at other points of time, maybe not so much. So it goes through all of the different key elements so that women really understand what are the, the factors that are that make up PCOS and then how to expect those to change at different times, as well as different things you can do at the different times of your life that, you know, are impacted by the condition. Because it's something that really evolves from childhood all the way through past menopause. Yeah, and, and a um, hysterectomy isn't going to cure you. No, absolutely. It will not. Yeah. <laughs> we know that that's the case. I have, I actually have a lot of postmenopausal women as patients who have PCOS and they still have the same problems. You know, they don't, they don't have periods anymore, so you can't see that, but the insulin resistance is all still there, the inflammation. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely not going to be cured by a hysterectomy. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the, I, I, I love the work that you've done and the contribution that you've made to the PCOS community, as I said um, in the opening, you really have been a blessing to me, you know, just personally and professionally, and um, I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. I, I just want to say the same to you. You're such such a tireless advocate and helper, and you always have so much wisdom to share. And I think, you know, I just feel so lucky to to have met you and to be able to work with you. Oh, well, you know, and I'm looking forward to seeing you this summer, hopefully, at the conference we go to every year. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I and, will be there. Yay. So so how can people learn more, more about your work? Yeah, so you can just check out my website. It's at drfionnd.com. And uh, if, you, if anyone's in Toronto, I have a clinic at whitelotusclinic.ca that you can uh, check out. We, we treat lots and lots of women with PCOS there.
Now, do you do you do um, like Skype consults or? Right now, we don't. Uh, okay. We used to do that, uh, but now our regulations have made it such that we we don't do that anymore. However, if uh, people are interested, they can give our clinic a call because sometimes that you know that might change, um, or there might be ways that we can accommodate uh, distance patients if they are to fly up. Um, so yeah, just let us know or reach out to us. My uh, clinic's email is info at whitelotusclinic.ca. Oh, excellent. Well, thanks for taking time to come on to the podcast and sort of share some of your the recent um, research. I, maybe we can make this a regular appearance, you know, every six months or so. You can share the latest with us. Sure, I would love to. I just love geeking out on research, so I'm happy to do that anytime. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, and I'm in the show notes, I'm going to point to your article um, about AMH that you wrote and that recent study that you that you um, mentioned. Um, and also um, link to our previous podcasts so people can listen in. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. Well, and thank you everyone for listening. I look forward to being with you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and learned a little something that can help you along in your journey. For more information about PCOS and PCOS Diva products and programs, visit PCOSDiva.com. This podcast was sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS. It's my proven 21-day diet and lifestyle plan to help women with PCOS take back control of their health and resolve their symptoms. Healing PCOS offers you daily, small, manageable steps that help alleviate symptoms and control the inflammation, hormonal imbalance, and insulin resistance that underlie PCOS. The 21-day plan consists of a 21-day anti-inflammatory hormone-balancing meal plan, including meal prep and plan-ahead tips to make eating like a PCOS diva sustainable, 85 delicious recipes, daily lessons, and self-care exercises. I have helped tens of thousands of women with PCOS take back control over their health and their lives through lasting healing and sustainable lifestyle change. So whether you're newly diagnosed or have struggled a lifetime with PCOS, this book is for you. Find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere books are sold.